<laughs> For this episode, we had some very important guests come into the studio. All right, can everyone hear my voice? Yep. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I wanted to have a little chat to you guys about your school. That's our producer Ollie, and she's chatting with Aaliyah and Ewan. What school do you go to? Jarjum. Jarjum, and where's Jarjum? Redfern. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Jarjum College is a primary school with a very specific purpose. And it's for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids who, for whatever reason, aren't finding success in mainstream schools. This is Jarjum's principal, Matt Smith. So it's very different to a lot of other schools. At the moment, we've got 18 students, but we like to have around 20, 22. And they tend to come and go, depending on what the local Redfern community is like at the time. Redfern is the Indigenous hub of Sydney's inner city. It was the birthplace of the Black Power movement in Australia, and where former Prime Minister Paul Keating gave his famous speech acknowledging the harm done by European settlers to Indigenous Australians. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. Do you think that Jarjum College is sort of set up as a reaction to our colonial history? Uh, Yes, I think that is fair to say. It's set up as a response to a really specific need. We cannot imagine that the descendants of people... A need to improve education for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I'm Verity Firth, and you are listening to Uniform, Season 2 of All Things Equal. When it comes to the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous students, the numbers speak for themselves. In 2018, the national school attendance rate was around 82% for Indigenous students. For non-Indigenous students, attendance was around 93%. And this gap of about 10 percentage points has been around for the last five years, which means we aren't making any progress. Statistics. On the one hand, we need to acknowledge inequality in our society and having data gives us a way to keep track of our progress. But this can also build a discourse of disadvantage and deficit around minority groups that can lead to further discrimination and stereotyping. The numbers can be dehumanising, which is why in this episode we speak to the humans Little humans what up? and big humans. Hi. We look to the past to see how we got here. Well, all of our kids, they've felt the impact of intergenerational trauma. And into the future, where a university in Australia is creating a world-first in tertiary education for Indigenous students. For once, Indigenous people, rather than being on the periphery of educational institutions, that we're the hosts. But let's begin in the present. Producer Nina Copel is bringing us the story. We had heard about this all-Indigenous primary school called Jarjum Redfern College, and we wanted to know what it was like. So Ollie and I went straight to the source. Can you run us through a typical day for you at Jarjum? It's hard to explain. I can try. There's not really a typical day at Jarjum. Every day's different. What's different about Jarjum? Well... 
everything. Like really, it is so much. First, there's the bus ride. You had a school bus, darling. We do have a Jarjum school bus, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like the school bus, Aaliyah? Yeah. You love it, don't you? I drive the bus. I pick up the kids in the morning and drop them off at home in the afternoon. This is Warwick. I have quite a few titles. <laughs> um, I drive the bus. I'm a teacher's assistant and the like community liaison officer. So Warwick helps the kids get to school. And when the kids arrive? We have a breakfast in the school. Who cooks breakfast at school? So the kids will often cook their own breakfast on the barbecue or we set up a little Jarjum cafe in the playground and it's a little bit of a community time. And then after breakfast? We go to gathering. And gathering is where the kids say uh, the acknowledgement of country, the school prayer. They spend a bit of time going through what's happening that day. So just looking at the learning schedule um, and then do celebrating us. So they, they look at celebrating each other's achievements from the last last few days. And then it's time for class. We usually have two adults in the class at any time and there's between five and seven students. So they do the normal things like numeracy and literacy. Ewan loves reading books. He's often wandering around with a book under his arm. What's your favourite book, Ewan? Um, mostly comic books. Ooh, I really like a comic book called Tank Girl. Do you know this one? No. 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 What kind of comic books do you read? Superman, Iron Man, Captain America. What else? You were reading Asterix on the bus. Oh, yeah, Asterix. (laughs) But sometimes class is a little different. What do you like about school, Ewan? The park. What do you like doing in the park? Playing. I love actually taking them outside, like in nature, and they'll wander around and collect sticks or climb trees. You know, and that's different too. We can climb trees at our school. At Jarjum, the children can climb trees. The day we spoke to Sharon, she had taken her class to Centennial Park and up a tree some of the kids were able to climb. Then there was this big imagination game. The tree became a ship. We were looking for other ships. <laughs> and icebergs, because the Titanic is such a big theme. <laughs> it's been such a big theme for us. All hands on deck! <laughs> it was great, and they were so happy that they could climb the tree. And so then this afternoon... Can we go back to that park tomorrow? No, we might have to stay in school tomorrow. So, But just, you know, that's the, what they love. And I love being able to give that to them. But the story of Jarjum hasn't been all fun and games. Indigenous education in Australia has had a bad history. Between one in three and one in ten Indigenous children were forcibly removed from their families during the height of what we now know as the Stolen Generation. Some of these children were left to be raised and educated in religious missions. And for many, this is a living memory. How is Jarjan perceived in the broader community at Redfern? I think at first, like, it was frowned upon by the community. This is Warwick again, talking to Ollie. But 
as the years are going on, we're getting a reputation. How is it frowned upon by the community? I think because it was an Indigenous school, I hate to say this, but it was run by white people. I don't think the community didn't like that. But once they saw what the school was doing, like I said, the reputation got better. Yeah, we have a history of friction. So I'm I'm only new to the school and I'm learning a lot of the, the history as I go. But I believe in the early stages of the school there was a lot of there was protests outside the school about it and from Aboriginal and non Aboriginal people and all for different reasons. But I feel like we're accepted in the community now. People know who we are. And I think our reputation is changing too. And I think at, w- at one point in time we were seen as the bad school or the behaviour school. And I think that's shifting a bit and, and people are starting to recognise that we're a cultural school as well. And, you know, that's a, that's a nice thing to have in the community. People know who we are when we walk down the street. And what kind of things were these people protesting you said there was a number of things. Yeah, I, I think some of it was the use of the space. So the building itself, I believe, was a bit contested, but also the appointment of particular staff. I think ideally they'd love to have an Aboriginal principal and Aboriginal staff, and I think, like, I'm hopeful that one day that's something the school can do, but that's easier said than done sometimes. Yeah, and I and there was some um, debate around the name of the school, the mission of the school. So I, I think at, in the early days it was very controversial. What kind of things were they worried about about the mission of the school? I think it's a, around uh, maybe a, a Catholic organisation taking on education of Aboriginal kids. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose historically that hasn't always worked out great for Aboriginal people. Yeah, and 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 I I understand that sensitivity as well. The the thing is I think when people see that um the purpose of Jarchum isn't evangelization, it's about serving people and the church and the the local parish as well and the the Jesuit community play a big role in that. And ultimately I I report to the Provincial of the Society of Jesus in Australia and Father Brian McCoy and he was very clear to me about dignifying and respecting Aboriginal spirituality and that's a key part of what we do at the school. I think at Jarjum we give kids a voice. It's not you do this, you do that. They can have their say. And yeah. And do you think that really changes their educational outcomes? I think so, yeah. We don't force them to learn. We just there to nurture them. That's their safe place. Yeah. Sorry, I'm kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. Oh, that's really sweet. So Jarjum is trying to give their kids an education that mainstream schools couldn't or wouldn't provide. You know, because some of our children have started mainstream in the mainstream system and because of, you know, some behaviour issues, they've been excluded from that. Or their day, not excluded, that's not the right word, 
Sharon doesn't want to use the word excluded, but that's exactly what's happening here. It's pretty hard to get expelled from a public primary school. But if kids are misbehaving, after a process of timeouts and talks with parents, they can end up having their school day reduced. Sharon says some of the kids at Jarjum were on pretty limited hours at mainstream schools. Their day was cut down to, say, half an hour or one hour a day. And that doesn't do much to address the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous attendance rates. So for us at Jarjum, it's about accepting that child and making sure that they have a day at school. The small class sizes at Jarjum gives them a flexibility that isn't always possible in the mainstream system. They come to our school and they can yell and scream, they can throw a chair, they can push books off a table, and it's still okay. It's their school. It's still their school. And they don't have to go home. Rather than excluding students for bad behaviour, Jajam tries to help students understand how they're feeling. We're just going to sit over here and wait till you calm down. We're going to have a little chat and I'm going to teach you a little bit about how your brain's working and, you know, I ask them to put their hand on their heart to feel their heart beating and if it's going fast, then we don't talk at that time because we just need to calm down. So it's, it's all of that. It's about teaching them how to manage their frustrations. A lesson we could probably all learn from, but one that Matt Smith, the principal of Jarjim, says is especially important for their students. So the specific needs of a urban Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community are, are very particular. I think that's the biggest difference. So all, all of our kids, they've felt the impact of disadvantage. There's a lot of intergenerational trauma that kind of manifests through the kids' behaviour and their learning and the way they socialise with each other. So all day that's present. And this is where history becomes really important. Because Indigenous Australians have experienced trauma as the result of colonisation, forced child removals, dispossession of land and violence. This trauma has been passed through the generations. But that's only part of the story. Because the racist policies which caused this trauma were created by people. People who had children. And racism can be intergenerational too. We had this young boy coming towards the end of the year last year. And the main reason he got taken out of a mainstream school is because he was being bullied. This is Warwick again, talking to Ollie. Was it his parents' decision to take him out? Yes, or? yeah, yeah. It was his father's decision. And was the bullying racially motivated? Yep. Uh, and how is this particular kid going at Jarjan? Ah, oh, Awesome. Yeah, he's fitted in straight away. He's quite a smart kid too. Gets stuck into his work. I'm really proud of him. How do you feel about having a school that's racially segregated? Do you think what what effect do you think it has on the kids? I think a good effect. It's there's safe place to go. They're not going to get discriminated. Everyone's equal. Yeah. Do you think that's, is that something that the kids tell you they've experienced a lot at their previous schools? Yes. Yep. 
our kids have a really they're all very different from each other and they they all sit on a continuum as well of behavior and learning but also in terms of how they identify with their aboriginality having a strong connection to culture and identity improves health resilience and life outcomes for aboriginal and torres strait islander kids and we've got some kids who are really proud of being aboriginal and very active in um, communicating that and articulating it and we've got other kids who are ashamed or just don't understand their own personal heritage and that's um, that's pretty difficult do you feel that they don't have that safe space in mainstream schools? Uh, I, I, yes, I think that's true. I, I think a lot of schools try to create that, but it's very difficult to do, particularly when you know there's there is a lot of prejudice against Aboriginal people, and it's difficult for a school to um, operate in a vacuum where that prejudice doesn't exist. And, and that's we've actually discussed at Jarjan before at a sort of governance level. Is it appropriate to have a school that's just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids? And the answer comes back very strongly every time we have that discussion that, yes, it is, because there's a need for it. Like if if these kids weren't with us, it would be so much more difficult for them to access their culture. It would be more difficult for them to um, experience uh, the identity journey that they go through in another place. But they can do that in a really safe way with us. And what kind of programs or, you know, daily activities do you do to sort of involve culture in the learning experience and in the school more generally? Recently we've been spending a bit of time at the Botanic Gardens and they've got a really strong Indigenous education program there. And for our guys, it's not all of our teachers are Aboriginal. It's We found it actually difficult to recruit Aboriginal staff. Matt says they encourage Indigenous people to apply for jobs when they advertise, but few do. So for our kids to be able to have access to that knowledge and those traditions, we we um, look to form these partnerships. And because the Botanic Gardens team have a strong Indigenous education team, they support us in some of that. So um, they look at things like traditional medicines, you know, cultural history, they looked at some Indigenous games, things like that that our kids can engage with. But then we also kind of do the normal science curriculum and we just – have an Aboriginal perspective on it because we've got Aboriginal educators there who can sort of overlay that. But also working with the Metropolitan Aboriginal Lands Council, they provide some support in in terms of connecting us with community elders but also drawing on the the kids' families. So some of our kids have in the care of their, their parents or their grandparents and uncles and aunties who hold some of that knowledge and, and love to come and share it. So we do have an opportunity for that sometimes. And Warwick was saying that you do sort of cultural things in the school, mm-hmm. um, one of which was uh, like in introducing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander dance. Yep. Can you run us through a little bit of what that looks like? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty chaotic. And like I said, some of the kids, like the, some of them are really proud of it and other kids are really disconnected with it. And we tend to have our senior, our most senior kids are the ones who sort of help bring the others along. And one of our one of our mums is um, a really good Torres Strait Islander dance teacher, and so she comes in and, and does that. And we we've been using um, uh, connecting with Tribal Warrior in Redfern to teach dance as well. We get all the kids down to the playground, and we get the mats out, and they they get out and rehearse. And um, yeah, they generally they love it. And it, it can look a little chaotic in the rehearsal and the practice, but when it comes time to perform, they always sort of step up and and you can see when that happens the senior kids really 
push the little ones on to sort of take it seriously and yeah but it's really nice to see see how proud they are and you'll see some sometimes we just take the kids down to the park to play and a couple of them will start breaking out the shaky leg and and doing a few things to show that you know it's in the head and there's one boy in particular who i can think of and he's been teased a little bit by other kids and at his previous school for saying he's aboriginal when he might not look as aboriginal as people expect but to see him emerge as a leader in the cultural dance has been so good and you can just see that's a big part of his identity now is that he's he's the best dancer and he does the best kangaroo and he's the one who um, remembers the songs and that's been a really important growth point for him The numbers I gave at the top of the show were the bad news stories that are often quoted when we talk about the Closing the Gap report. But there are good news stories to be found in this report. The number of Indigenous students finishing Year 12 is up. And the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students in higher education has more than doubled. Now, there is still more to be done, especially in tertiary education. Indigenous students still form a very small minority of university students. But we are heading in the right direction. And there are significant plans afoot. You know, it was a really sort of groundbreaking idea. Here's Shannon Dodson. I'm a Yaru woman. My family's from Broome in Western Australia. Shannon Dodson is the Communications Manager for the Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous Leadership and Engagement at UTS. And she's working on a world first. I'm pretty proud to work at a university that was actually willing to take a bit of a risk and jump in and try something that is not focusing on a deficit but more a strengths-based approach to Indigenous education. And this risk, this strength-based approach, is taking shape in the form of an Indigenous residential college. We wanted to create the first college that, rather than being steeped in the traditions of other countries or, you know, our English traditions, for it to be steeped in the oldest continuing cultures in the world, which is Indigenous peoples. The college will completely evolve around Indigenous knowledge and culture. From the design of the building to the interior, to what spaces there are, to have you know, community access to this college, which will have theatre performances, art areas. You know, there are talks about having a library, having space for Indigenous students to do their family tree and look through their historical knowledge around their families and communities. So we wanted it to be where, for once, Indigenous people, rather than being on the periphery of educational institutions, that we're the hosts, 
So we're the hosts and other people are the guests. But the college will also challenge the way mainstream society deals with Indigenous peoples. So I think when you look at the way that the government talks about Indigenous issues, the way that we publicly talk about it in the media, it's often around uh, the gaps that Indigenous people face. So those things are important because we do have to understand that Indigenous people are coming from a different standing point and it is important to note that there is a gap when it comes to education, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, and so that's important. We need to address that. But we can't just keep talking about this deficit language and about how terrible things are because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have amazing things to offer. We have made long-standing contributions to this country for tens of thousands of years. So we really want to focus on the positive things and the contributions that Indigenous students can make to the university. And it's not just about what the university can do for Indigenous people. It's about the fact that Indigenous people have a lot to offer this country also. So we really want it to be around excellence and for Indigenous students to feel like they're in a supported environment that is really empowering them to be the best students that they can possibly be and to provide that wraparound support in the college, at the university, on all different levels to ensure that they can be the best version of themselves. And so this residential college is a way of turning conversations around from a focus on deficit to a focus on potential. We know that this actually will create long-lasting social change and that this is going to not only help Indigenous people to feel more comfortable in the um, tertiary education space, but also to help non-Indigenous people feel more connected to Indigenous peoples and cultures. Is it a form of segregation? <laughs> I, think, I think that's an interesting question. And I think that the college is about creating a community within a community. It's not just for Indigenous students, it's for non-Indigenous students as well. And so I think that actually this is going to be sort of the opposite of segregation. It's going to be an opportunity for Indigenous and non-Indigenous students to have a space to feel more connected to Indigenous cultures and traditions. And I think that's something that's really important for all universities to have as an element and for something that all Australians should be proud of our Indigenous cultures. The current plan is to have the college up and running by 2024. And Shannon says she's excited about what this means for future students. These students are then going to go on to working in organisations, in corporations. Some of those students might become CEOs, they might become Prime Minister. That's going to have such a positive effect on the country. And so I'm just, I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of impact this is going to have as we get down the track. And so, with our eyes set to the future, this season of All Things Equal comes to an end. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye, Ayala. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Uniform. If you enjoyed the season and haven't listened to season one yet, go back to After Me Too, where we explore gender, power and what feminism means today through real women's stories. He believed he was entitled to a kiss more than I was entitled to, you know, my right to consent. Women always are at the forefront of the revolution. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. And don't forget to subscribe. We have another season coming out and we don't want you to miss it. You've been listening to All Things Equal, a collaboration between the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. This podcast is produced by Miles Herbert, Ollie Henderson and Nina Copel. Marketing and communications by Olivia Stanley. And a big thanks to Laura Oxley from the Centre. This podcast was made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose elders have been telling stories here since time immemorial. Stay in the loop by finding us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your host, Verity Firth. Thanks for listening.